This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Good afternoon, Austin. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to Hilka for another wonderful edition of the Andean Hour. We've got a wonderful show in store for you today. We're talking all about champagne, and I have live in the studio Alan Tardy, who uh, has just come out with a book. It's a wonderful book about uh, a year that he spent with the Champagne House Krug and uh, uncovering all of their secrets and learning all of the things that they do. So stay tuned. We'll be live with Alan in just a moment. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, It's a a wonderful pleasure to welcome into the studio Alan Tardy. He is a wine and food writer. He's based in in New York, and he uh, has uh, his his, uh, experience is vast. He has been a chef. He has been a wine educator. Um, in New York and abroad, uh, he, he, he has lived in Italy, um, and he just came out with a, a book this year, 2016, called Champagne Uncorked. Um, Alan, thank you so much for coming to the show. Mark, thank you so much for having me. Really happy to be here. Excellent. So we're, we're, I'm really looking forward to digging into the region of Champagne. Um, I, I thank Co-op for allowing uh, us to come in and, and talk about wine and meet excellent wine people from all around the world and, and Austin as well. You're in town uh, because uh, as part of uh, this book release, you're, you're uh, giving a dinner at the Driscoll and, and uh, there's going to be pairing. Uh, food, delicious food, champagne, and readings from the book. It's it's an exciting uh, adventure. Sounds like a great combination to me, and I'm very excited <laughs> to be there. So let's um, w- w- let's dig into a little bit about what the book is about. Of course, champagne uh, called Champagne Uncorked. Uh, but you did something very special in order to uh, prep for for uh, all of the research that you did. You spent a year in Champagne uh, with the Champagne House crew, correct? That's right. Now it wasn't a, it was not really a continuous year, but sure. over the course of a year, I spent a lot of time there, especially at all the critical moments in uh, in in the the life of making a, a wine. So um, tell us how how you kind of got the idea. I mean, champagne has been a passion of yours. Um, you've been writing about champagne. You, you've you came out with a book on Barolo uh, a number of years ago. Um, what made you want to to kind of take on this project? Well, that's it. It is true that um, I lived in the area of Barolo, right in the heart of the Barolo wine region, for well, gosh, I guess it's almost fifteen years now. Since two thousand and three is when I really moved there. Um, and in the Barolo area, you know, we have one grape variety, Nebbiolo, made from uh, the grapes of one particular harvest, so it's always a vintage wine, and it comes usually from one particular place. Well, the Barolo wine area is very small, but oftentimes they'll make a single vineyard Barolo, so they were really talking about one grape variety, one year, and one very specific vineyard. You know, the first time I've known about Champagne for a long time and appreciated Champagne for a long time, but when I actually first went there... 
I was really uh, blown away by by the area itself. It's not really what I was expecting it would be like. It's not very uh, dramatic on the outside, but all of the, a lot of the drama and mystery is actually underneath in the soil. That was one thing. Another thing is the fact that, you know, once I actually visited the area, I got a, a new appreciation of the fact that there, the wine, a classic champagne, is made from different grape varieties sourced from many different places within the Champagne region and even different vintages. Wow. I mean, so um, when somebody opens a bottle of champagne, they are experiencing different grape varieties blended, uh, maybe in proportions that, that, that are unknown to, to the, the world. I mean, they, and, um, and then different vintages. Why? So why has, has champagne uh, grown to be like that? Well, you know, the fact is that the, the idea, the concept of a vintage champagne or a single parcel champagne or even a single variety champagne are, are pretty recent. By pretty recent, I mean, I think the vintage champagne started being created around the late 1800s okay. um, for the first time. The reason for that is up until a certain point in time, the champagne area, the champagne growing area, which is in the, the far northern part of France, it's a very, uh, climatically speaking, it's a very difficult area. This is right on the border of, you know, the, beyond which grapes can't really be, be cultivated. Sometimes the weather there is really difficult, so people would uh, often lose an entire harvest in their vineyard and in a certain area. So at some point, producers got very savvy and decided to start sourcing different grape varieties, because one grape variety might do better in a given year than another, from different areas within the zone, because different areas might be do better or worse in a particular vintage. And then eventually, even re retaining some wine from really exceptional vintages to use for, uh, in those years, that were less, less fortuitous. So this is how the, the blending is a fundamental part of Champagne really came about. And yeah. all the other, like the single vintage and the single variety and vineyard wines came much later. And um, and also the champagne wasn't always bubbly too. Can can we uh, kind of t talk about how that? Uh, uh, there's a whole story in, uh, behind how the champagne got its bubble, right? Um, which you get into in the book, and I, I think you do a wonderful job weaving in some historical figures and and how the region evolved as a whole uh, into your experience. Um, yeah. Well, right. You know, when I first when I first went there, I became fascinated with this whole idea of blending, of taking all these different components and somehow working them together into this seamless whole that then becomes more than the sum of its parts. Right. And, and then I really, after I, I had this sort of uh, fascination with that aspect of it, I had this idea that I really wanted to follow one producer throughout the entire process of making this classic champagne that is a, a blend of different grape varieties from different places and different vintages. And that's when I really sort of uh, zeroed in on Krug as a perfect house in which to do that. Yeah, why is that? Well, because for, for, for Krug, uh, blending, you know, creating this sort of assemblage, as the French call it, has always been their, um, their well, as the French say, a raison d'etre, their a reason for existing. This is uh, the wine that they're, the type of wine that their founder created when the house uh, began in 1843. And that's always, it's always remained for them 
they're in many ways their most important wine, even though over the years they added on other types of wine, like a vintage, or they, they actually have two small parcels uh, that are what we call a clos, an enclosed vineyard, that sometimes in certain years they'll bottle on their own. But for them, the, the, the blended wine, the Grand Cuvée, is not sort of their base wine, their least expensive wine, and then it goes up in a hierarchy, but that is, um, for them, the, the central part of what they're all about. And they take it to, to great extremes, um, right. which I learned when I, when I was there. Yeah, and we're going to really dig into the complexities of the whole thing. Um, I'd like to, I, I'd like to t- you to say a little bit about uh, your experience in kind of uh, convincing them to, to allow you to, uh, into their cellars, allow you with their chef de cave, their winemaker, and, um, and just tell us a little bit about that. Well, I can tell you, first of all, that it was not easy. Um, <laughs> after I, I went there, I, I, I was invited to go and, um, and, and visit the, uh, the winery for a few days as, a, as a, a group of journalists that they had come over at a certain point. And that's when I really sort of uh, became fascinated with this idea of, with this practice, I should say, of blending. And shortly after that, I, I kind of proposed to them this idea of, you know, that I really wanted to explore that thoroughly and very fully and I wanted to, um, to to really spend a lot of time with them going through that entire process firsthand and I have to say was it, um, was it a book idea from the very beginning or did it start out as maybe a, a series of articles or well I, I I thought no I thought that it I thought that it could be could be a book um, yeah. it just seemed like something that would be in-depth enough to, to merit you know really doing a book about it but of course I, I I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do until I until I actually started you doing there, it yeah. and got into it, but but you know I had this idea and I proposed it to them and much to my surprise they didn't ignore it. I kind of expected <laughs> that might happen, right. but um, uh, uh, shortly after that I did get um, a response from the uh, from the the CEO of the of the, the house who was interested in the idea. Right. So uh, and then from there we kind of went back and forth talking like what did I want to do and. Uh, uh, and why did I want to do it? And um, and what what were their reservations? Because I, I think of uh, champagne houses. I mean, other than the obvious of having somebody else, you know, there and and um, I think of champagne houses as very secretive. And uh, and did you encounter that, or is it? Sometimes I think they're very secretive, and sometimes I think that because of the complexity, they are almost uh, don't uh, don't feel that it, explaining it is necessary. It's just trust us. Well, um, those are those are two very good points, and I would say in the case of Krug, uh, the answer is both of those things. <laughs> right. um, now, it is true that the champagne houses are particularly secretive about many things. Um, one of them is where they source their grapes from. Another one of them is what actually goes into their blend. And I, I think part of it is they just, you know, so part of it is they want to keep that proprietary information. Sure. And another part of it is, you know, as you suggested, I, I mean, does anybody really need to know that? And this was actually really the philosophy at Krug in the previous generation. Um, they were they were very open about many things, but they didn't want to burden people. So they had this this wine. It was a blended wine. It was a non, well, what we call a non-vintage wine. They prefer to call a multi-vintage wine. Right, right. Uh, but so they didn't want to burden people with all of the details that went into it. Right. Um, yeah. Which makes, you know, which I think makes a lot of sense. And part of it was just they didn't want to, they didn't want that to interfere with people's enjoyment of the wine. Another part of it was that they, like everybody else, has their 
their proprietary practices that they like to um, like to protect. Yeah. What are the advantages of a, a blended uh, multi-vineyard and sometimes up to in over 100, 200 vineyards might go into a, a bottle of champagne, which we'll get into. But what are the advantages of that as opposed to, you know, a single vineyard, a single vintage champagne? And both uh, both have merits, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's um, it's kind of like would you, what's better, uh, a solo piano player or a piano concerto? Right, right. I mean, um, what, what, what's better, uh, the sort of solid color tie or, or one with a design? Right. You know, it really depends on your mood, your preference, what you eat, what you're, uh, the occasion, but they're not mutually exclusive. There's room for all of them. Um, right. and, and so they're, they're two different approaches, yeah. But um, one, there, there's, one is not necessarily better than the other. Yeah. Can we uh, walk through kind of each process as, um, as you saw it unfold throughout your year there um, and, and kind of walk through there? And, and I'd like to delve into some of the debates and some of the, the I think, the, the techniques that uh, champagne houses might kind of tend to glance over um, and, and develop them. And uh, so, so we started with uh, vineyards. You would go around with Eric um, and 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 visit some of the vineyards that they were sourcing grapes from, right? Well, yeah, that is. Um, that's where the book kind of starts. That's right? where that's where it all starts, really. That's where the book started because that's where it really right. all um, all begins with any um, any the, with a particular growing season, how that is developing over, and the growing season really begins. The winter before, because how much snow there is, uh, when, once it melts, it, it, it goes into the ground, and so you have a, a sort of reservoir of moisture in the ground. It really begins before the season even begins, with the winter before, but then once you, know, once you have the bud break and what happens during the springtime, and uh, as the, 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 the vines and the grapes mature, it gets more and more critical. So um, beginning... Uh, Late spring, early summer, around the end of June or so, Eric begins driving all over the Champagne area. And this is, describe who Eric is. So Eric LaBelle is presently the chef de cave of Maison Krug. That is, he is the one who's the, responsible for the overall operation of the winery from, from the seller standpoint, not really so much marketing and things like that. Right, but, um, right. And it's a huge responsibility. The chef de cave of any um, sort of medium to larger size champagne house is the the focal person that that is in charge of making the wine, of sourcing the grapes in many cases, of maintaining the house, interpreting and maintaining the house style. So it's really a key position yeah. at, um, and, at any and, champagne and, house. And these, these chef de caves are, um, uh, spend a, gen, a, a, you know, a full lifetime almost there, right? And, um, and, and do we see champagne houses when they, we have a turnover of chef de cave? It's a, it's a, a big deal, right? Well, we um, actually, it's a very interesting moment right now, I would say, in uh, if we're talking about the House of Krug, for example. So Eric LaBelle, who began working there in 1998, uh-huh. was the first um, independent chef de cave who was not a member of the, the Krug family. Before that, when Eric first started, he wasn't a, a chef de cave right away. He worked in the cellar with, um, with Henri Krug, who was one of the, the two brothers, the Krug brothers that ran the house. 
Henri and Remy Krug. Henri was really in charge of the of the cellar, but he was a, a family member, and right, it was a right. like many uh, wineries in Champagne. Champagne, it was a really a house house run. Um, a family-run house. Yeah. So Eric then became the chef de cave. As uh, Henri got a bit older, he, he would delegate more and more responsibilities to Eric, and eventually he became the, the chef de cave. Now Eric, um, even when I was there in, the, in around 2013, 2014, he was, he was beginning to think about building up his, his team to, uh, to carry on the baton for when he left. We don't know when that'll be. He's still very much... Uh, the chef de cave and in control, but now um, he sort of has his, you know, his his young staff uh, being primed to take over for him. So there's a continuity there. Right, right. So then he they he trains them, and 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 uh, it's a wonderful legacy. I, I find it I find it beautiful in 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 training the the up and coming folks. So you started in the spring, and you would travel around with Eric to uh, the various vineyards and. Um, describe what that was like. I mean, you've got maybe a refined, somebody who is a, a, a tr- tremendous amount of experience um, with the house, and then he's visiting farmers, right? Yes, well, I mean, I should say that Eric is a Champenois. He comes from the area of, of uh, Vitry-le-Francois in, um, in kind of the midsection of, of Champagne. He went to, uh, to wine school in Reims, so he's very, he is a Champenois, and that, I think, is... Um, is critical. However, right. the person who's going to take over for him is was not from that area, but that's okay. Um, but so he's very much a Champenois. He, uh, for him, I spent a lot of time with him, driving around in the car back and forth um, to meet with the suppliers, to visit, go walking up and down the vineyards, to taste the grapes on the vine as they're, you know, they're not mature yet, but just to see where they're at in their developmental phase. Right. And it was it was really fascinating, and of course I I learned that this is a critical aspect of the winemaking at, at least at Krug, um, and you know it is more or less. But but each person each winery has their own their own style. But at Krug it's really central because each of these suppliers has their own particular personality. Their vineyards have their own character based on how they where they are, what type of variety is, how they're being cared for, and all of this together. Um, creates, you know, fruit grapes, which are the raw materials for making a wine, with a with a certain element of character and personality. Right. And and so I think for Eric, I got the sense that for him, uh, I mean, part of it is just to see how the season is going. Part of it is really housekeeping chores because since Krug, um, for for the past couple decades. Sources they don't just source a bunch of fruit of you know certain type of grape variety from a certain area general area they want to source specific parcels because right. they've identified over the years that certain parcels particular you know plots of a vineyard show better than others in right. their opinion so yeah. they want to source the actual specific parcel which means that one of the things that Eric was doing when he was going around and visiting all these producers is settling is creating a contra- contract or contracts for each lot of grapes that they get from these producers for a specific plot a specific area so there are those two aspects but then i realized that there was a third aspect which is that eric lebel chef de cave enjoys the personal interaction with each of these farmers each of whom right. has their own personality from kind of rustic and rowdy to to sort of refined and elegant he, Eric, I saw that he was able to kind of shift his demeanor a little bit 
to meet these people on a, a on a, a an even playing field in a way, yeah. and that was fascinating. And, and to give us a little perspective, so he's going through all of this effort with with each grower supplier, uh, and then how much wine will that actually yield that then gets put into you know a blend? I mean, are we talking uh, yeah, acres upon acres? We're talking you know it only gives us maybe one barrel of wine, right? Well, um, most of most of the farmers, you know, for, in Champagne, there's a very very interesting dynamic. There are relatively few houses that actually produce and market champagne, and many, many, many small growers who supply them with the majority of the grapes. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Most of the people that we saw were not huge farmers, and they did not supply, they didn't give all of their grapes to the House of Krug. Right. Many of them um, made wine of their own. In some cases, they would sell the, the, the grape musk to other, um, to other houses. Uh, some actually bottled their own wine and, and, and just gave a portion of their grapes to Krug. Usually, they were very small plots. In some cases, I mean, Eric would spend a lot of time talking with someone who was maybe going to give him um, at the end of the day, with a number, putting a number of small producers together, one pressing, a standard pressing in Champagne is 4,000 kilos. That is the, the contents of a, of a traditional press. It's right. all measured in that. They would give him one press or mark of grapes. So there's a lot yeah. of work and a lot of, not just work for Eric, but also his, his secretary, his assistant, who had to prepare all these contracts, was... Um, in a tizzy for <laughs> the entire spring and summer and right. even into the fall, just trying to keep it all right. straight. So um, I want to, we, we've got so much to talk about, but I think that this is really worth digging into a little bit as far as um, why, you know, why do these large houses uh, operate with such complexity? Why, um, and, and why do more growers not uh, bottle their own wine um, and, and uh, you know, for folks listening out there, if you're not familiar with these grower champagnes, these are the, the labels that are arriving on on the shelves that might not be those recognizable brands, and they might only produce 10,000 bottles or you know um, a, a very small amount of champagne, but they're doing it from their own vineyard as opposed to a large house buying grapes and sometimes buying must, as you say, which is the grape <laughs> juice, and sometimes buying finished wine, right? Yeah, I'd like to develop that dynamic just a little bit because, I mean, was it historically that the, the sh making the champagne was such a costly uh, endeavor that each little grower couldn't really uh, do it on his or her own? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. And I, I mean, I should say right now in champagne, it's a very, very exciting time because you have a lot of different types of, of realities, production realities in the Champagne region. As right. you said, you have very big established historical houses that make millions and millions and millions of bottles. And we know, you know, all, all their brands, very, they're very familiar. And uh, down to, you know, a, a whole sort of revolution of new smaller producers entering the market. Right. Um, and I think that there is not really one that is, that is better or worse than the other. They're really different. Obviously, um, a small producer does something different. I mean, this is a person who grows right. their grapes on their land and makes their own wine from it. So it's very personal. It's a little bit more particular, you could say. Uh, whereas a larger house um, sources grapes from many different areas and, 
and has a big reserve cellar, so they can create a whole, a completely different type of champagne than than a small producer can. Can Can I have you um, talk about the idea of uh, reserve wines? What are reserve wines, and and why are they so important? Um, and and do different houses do different things with them? I mean, this is something that is behind the scenes that I find incredibly interesting. That um, gives you an insight as to why some champagne tastes entirely different than another. Absolutely, and it's a it is a fascinating, fascinating topic. And I would say that, so originally, reserve wines came about as a, as a way in really abundant, excellent vintages when you had a, a lot of a surplus, you might even say, really good quality grapes. You know, houses just said, hey, we're just going to hang on to some of this wine is sort of like... Uh, insurance policy against those years that are sooner or later going to come up that, that where the harvest is much uh, much poorer or less abundant. So it, it originally started out as almost almost a necessity. Right. Nowadays, um, it really is uh, not so much a necessity as like, you know, an investment in the future. And I will say that, so Krug, um, because what they do is a little bit special and you have many different types, like I said, of realities in Champagne, um, Krug is not a big house and it's not a small house. It's considered, um, you know, sort of the, the, the smallest of the Grand Marc in a way, which are the, the sort of big established houses. Right. Um, I, I could tell you what their product, the average production is, but then I would be in really big trouble. But, you know, you can find it out there. It's not really a secret, but right, um, right. it's something that, that we don't really like to talk about that much for some reason. But um, it's not really all that much. And they're a very, you know, a very prestigious house. They only make what we would kind of call um, prestige champagne. We right. might talk about that later. But so for Krug, they take the blending process to an extreme, and therefore they take the re- their, their reserve collection in the cellar to another another extreme. At any given time, they have between 100 and 130 or 40 different wines in their reserve cellar going back up to 13 or 14 years. Wow. Um, and it's, it's, it's amazing. And for, for them, keeping an ample, uh, a well-stocked reserve cellar is absolutely, absolutely essential for them to create each year this, this blended wine that they call Grand Cuvée. So it's, uh, it's really essential for them. And that has, in some cases, um, necessitated them to make some really difficult decisions of what their priority is. And one of their chief priorities is to keep that reserve cellar well-stocked so that even if they have to forego uh, a vintage wine or, or a clo, one of the single parcel wines in some years, it's more important for them to keep the reserved cellar well supplied so they can make Grand Cuvée 10 or 15 years into the future. It's crazy. It, it, it is incredible. And you had the opportunity to taste uh, these reserve wines during these blending sessions that uh, the winemakers would then uh, talk about, oh, this lends this component, this lends this flavor, etc. Not well, to jump too far ahead, because I want to talk about those sessions. Right, and that, that, that was one of the most fascinating absolutely. Um, aspects of my whole experience here. But um, one thing I'll say about the reserve collection is that it just, it just recalls, um, well, two things. One is that Champagne, whether even, even in its still form as a, as a Van Clare, has an incredible capacity to age, or I should really say evolve yeah, positively sure. over time. Uh, whether it be as a still wine, or um, or, or as a as a sparkling wine, that's really amazing. But the other thing that that the whole reserve, the idea of a reserve cellar, uh, reinforced for me, is that 
wine is a living, breathing thing. Right. It's always changing. It's changing in, in the bottle. Over time, it's changing once you, um, in the glass, once you pour a glass of wine, the wine is changing and evolving in the glass. When you, you take a sip, you smell it, you take a sip, you enjoy it. When you go back to that glass, uh, you know, a few minutes later, it's going to be different. And right. so that, the reserve cellar, these wines that they have there have to be, for that reason, tasted again each and every year to right. see how they're evolving and how they might be used and what they might be able to contribute to a blend. And um, and they have to keep being tasted every year until they, there's no more of them left. Right. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's incredible. Alan, we have to take a short break. If you're just tuning in, uh, my name is Mark Rayshap. This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, K-O-O-P, Hornsby, Austin. Uh, and we're talking live with Alan Tardy, who is just out with his uh, book, 2016. It's uh, called Champagne Uncorked, and he will be uh, doing a book reading and uh, a champagne pairing dinner at the Driscoll this evening. So we're going to hear from some underwriting announcements, and we'll We'll be right back with Alan. Thank you for staying tuned. Uh, and we're having a wonderful conversation here with Alan Tardy. Uh, he is out with his book, Champagne Uncorked, and uh, uh, spending a year during the critical moments at the Champagne House Krug, who um, is is definitely known as a very high quality Champagne House. And we are uh, touched on the grower and large Champagne House uh, dynamic through in the Champagne region. Uh, and I hope everybody's getting ready for their for the holidays and uh, and and getting ready to pop some nice bubbles. Um, and so, you know, okay, so Alan, we talked about this kind of visiting of growers, uh, what the chef de cave uh, was doing through the spring and making sure everything was lined up. Then we have uh, September rolls around, right? And we're, and we're into harvest. What, what is the dynamic? Can you paint us a picture of what goes on in the region? <clears throat> well, you know, as, this, as the growing season progresses and the grapes ripen, the, uh, the in- intensity and the almost like tension and maybe even some anxiety increases as well of what is going to happen. Yeah. What's going to happen? Because, you know, once those grapes are, are ripening there on the vine, if there's a, if there, if the weather turns bad, if there's rain, it, they could, they could rot. If there's a hailstorm, they could get wiped out and it happens all the time. It happened right. this year. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, a, a lot of sort of, <clears throat> you know, growing tension in the air as harvest sort of nears its peak. And I should say that, you know, so I live, uh, I live for quite a while right in the middle of a, <clears throat> excuse me, of a wine growing area. So I'm familiar with harvest, but I had never really experienced a harvest period as it takes place in Champagne. Right. You know, first of all, in a lot of areas, I mean, uh, wine growers, grape growers, when their grapes are ripe, they pick them. Right. In Champagne, it doesn't happen like that. In Champagne, <laughs> the administrative organization, it's called the, uh, the CIVC, now they just call it the, the, the Comité Champagne, uh, decides, this is like the, the administrative body that kind of unites the, the, the bottlers, the manufacturers, and the growers. It encompasses, it administers the entire region of Champagne. Um, they decide, they declare... The, the, the opening day for harvest of the three principal grape varieties in every one of the 320 villages of Champagne. Wow. So they decide the start date for um, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Meunier in 320 villages throughout the region. So um, It's incredible. And they do that based on, you know, they're monitoring the, the development of the growing season throughout the entire period. They have... Um, 
They have a, a number of, uh, of people that they contact, growers that, they, that they're in touch with in different areas of the zone to kind of get their take on how things are developing and how the, the season is progressing and what might be, you know, how the grapes are maturing. Um, so it's not arbitrary by any means, and they even have some some village, you know, discussions about when they're when they're when they're planning to approximately when they're planning to do it. But you know, they like they make an announcement. It's so it's always on a Sunday evening. Um, <laughs> I think it's like you know about a week before it's going to begin. And uh, so that is that's a, you cannot legally start harvesting before those days. Unless, unless, yeah. unless <laughs> there's always an exception, right? <laughs> well, but there's an there's an exception. Now you used sure. to have to get something called uh, a derogation, a derogation, meaning that if you could prove that the grapes in the the area that you wanted to pick were going to achieve because because of where they already were at, achieve or surpass the minimum required potential alcohol uh, specified by the by the CIVC, then. You could get, you know, you could you could apply for and get this this exception to be able to pick early. Nowadays, because of the the time lapse of a day or two, and that's that's critical time in Champagne nearing harvest time, you can do it. You can just you can just declare that you're going to do it, and you can and you can um, go ahead and pick before the actual start date. But you better really be careful that your your minimum requirements are going to come in ab above. Uh, what they're specifying for that year, or your whole uh, your whole crop could be could be. Um, so what does that imply? Yeah. So you declassified, and you can, and you might not be able to use. The you wine can't use in it for champagne. champagne. You can't yeah. use it for. You cannot use it for champagne, which means you can't really. It, so it's what, worthless. You know what is the the importance of that minimum alcohol? It's well, you know, it's the the start dates. The um, that basically just is to ensure that that. For a given season, and it doesn't really fluctuate that much. It's usually around nine and a half uh, degrees of potential alcohol. So you want to make sure that once the there's enough sugar in the grapes, so that when the fermentation takes place, takes place, you can get to a minimum level in order to make a, a wine that will, but at the end of the entire process, arrive at around twelve to twelve and a half degrees alcohol. But even more than more important than that. So when I was there, two thousand thirteen. Um, they the Krug actually decided to pick one of their most important uh, plots. It's a, a single vineyard. It's a, one of these enclosed areas, of which there are a very limited number in Champagne. I mean, the 320 villages. There are thousands of these lieu these named places. Right. But there's only there's about actually about 36 registered clos in Champagne, but really only about 18 of them are actually you know, used for production now. Krug has two of them. So for them, the Clos de Menil, which is this historic enclosed vineyard in the town of Menil-sur-Auger in the Côte de Blanc, is, they own this parcel. And this for them is one of their, one of their, their most important parcels because they own it and it's, it's sort of um, very important, very close to their hearts. Right. So they, they're monitoring the vineyard very carefully on their own for, for this, themselves to see how the grapes are, are developing. And what they want in Champagne, and it's not really precise, but what they're looking for is the maximum amount of maturity and ripeness in the grapes, that is the, the sugar content, but before the acidity drops. Because in Champagne, what they really, really want is not so much overripeness because they're going to add sugar in the process anyway of making champagne. 
But what they want is acidity. That is really essential for them. So they want to find just the right moment to pick the grapes when they have the maximum amount of ripeness, but also the maximum amount of acidity and perfect balance. Now in Krug, they determined that at a certain point, a couple days before the official start date of Chardonnay and the Cote Blanc, that their grapes were ripe there, and they did not want to let it go a day later. And so they, they declared uh, a derogation, and they started picking the, uh, the, the, gra- the Chardonnay grapes and Claude de Menil the next day. And I was in, I remember, I was in the car with yeah. Eric. We were driving around, you know, visiting producers, and he got this call that they just got the, the latest lab results in. We, were, we had been there the day before to kind of check it out, and that they were going to start picking the next day. Wow. So uh, plans he, changed, right? Plans, well, plans <laughs> changed, and um, Eric, you know, had some other appointments with his visiting, still visiting other suppliers the next day. Um, and he, it's not that he really needs to be there for picking, the actual picking harvest. in the vineyard anyway. Yeah, but he yeah. said, he said to me, uh, so. <laughs> I know you were going to come with me tomorrow to visit this other area, but perhaps you would like to go to do harvest in Claude de Menil. And I, I wow. said, <clears throat> uh, yes. <laughs> I, I didn't want to make it sound like I didn't want to spend time with him because, right. I mean, in fact, you know, I spent hours in the car in the car driving around with Eric between one visit and the next, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, if we weren't talking about something or if I wasn't badgering him with questions yeah. i was looking out the window watching the you know the scenery go by so i enjoyed it but i mean hey yeah the opportunity to be in this famous vineyard parcel for the the begin the very beginning of the 2013 harvest was too good an opportunity to pass up yeah and they have an actual press there in the clo in uh clo de Menil, and watching that function was uh as i read in the book a a a, a very magical thing as well right well this is you know this is like a, a an historical estate it was owned by an old champagne family uh, before it was first leased and then acquired by by krug um, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a walled, well, there's a, it's, there's a wall surrounding it. It encloses a vineyard, of course, all Chardonnay grapes because it's in the Cote Blanc. But there's also a house where the family used to live and a winery that was attached to it. So this was, you know, this was like a um, sort of, they had other parcels too, but uh, this was their, their wine estate. Yeah. And so in, this is really the, the only press that Krug owns and operates itself, which is very typical for, for, for Champagne. Um, that they, they use other, other presses. Absolutely, that many, that many Champagne maisons don't have their own press house. Some of them do, but many of them don't, and they're dependent on um, lining up a pressoir to, to, to press the grapes that they're, that they're contracting for, that they're going to receive. Yeah. But it was really great at Claude de Menil, first of all, to, to be in this historic place that I had visited before, but you know, never under these circumstances. Seeing the, you know, the watching harvest actually take place, and then the grapes go f- from the vine into the baskets, around the corner, into the press, into, and then watching the operation of a traditional 4,000 kilo press um, that you know, as it's been done for over 100 years, yeah. uh, the Cocard Press, this 4,000-liter press, uh, watching that whole process, and uh, you know, with, with the must, the juice coming out. It yeah. was great. It's amazing. That's amazing. So then where does the, the wine go from there? So now you have, uh, you have white grape juice, essentially, and it goes to, the, uh, goes to the cellars, or is it stored there for a clarification uh, at the clo? Or, um, 
you know, basically what's the next step? Well, you know what happened? There's a, there's a, an, ad, an adaptation of a saying in Champagne, or I just made it up, but what happens in the Clos de Menil stays in the Clos de Menil. Okay. So the grapes that are harvested from the Clos uh, are pressed and, um, and kept in that facility, as are the other Krug uh, holdings, the vineyard holdings in the Cote de Blanc. And um, it's very, like I said, it's very typical in Champagne for, uh, for houses to own little or no vineyards. Um, now, you know, more and more houses are starting to acquire some of their own vineyards. Right now, Krug has enough to sat up, satisfy about 20 or so percent of their, their total production. And that's pretty common too, right? That 20 to... That's, I mean, you know, there are some houses that still have no vineyards of their own. um, Some that have a large, large actual uh, vineyard holdings. And, um, but, you know, the the important thing is that however you're going to do it, even even many of the houses that own their own vineyards don't have enough press uh, press space available. So they're, they're dependent on really lining up a facility to press their grapes because in Champagne, and this is another thing that really blew my mind, once you've got those grapes that are picked at just the right moment, you have to get them to the press and through the press as quickly as possible without any jostling or sitting around to avoid, you know, oxidation right. or bruising the grapes or, you know, having um, other other problems, you know, if the grapes sit around too long, so they can the, oxidize so- or... That's the advantage of owning your own press, or it can be on your time. You don't have to really worry about waiting in line at a at a large facility, right? Uh, well, yeah. Usually, if you have your own press, then you control the entire the entire process. And there are some very large houses that, you know, for whom it was it was worthwhile to actually create their own modern press facility, which uh, I'm sure is very very efficient. You know, there, there now there, there, there's machinery. There are pressing facilities that can continually press thousands of kilos continuously. At a, you know, so they they have to right. some of them. Right. But you know, what I was watching is this uh, this this old method of doing a four thousand kilo press. It didn't really look uh, all that big. Um, you know, much as it was done many years ago. So it's a kind of a, a slightly different thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd like to I'd like to kind of mention some historical names in the Champagne region uh, because you do you do a wonderful job in the book of kind of weaving this history um, and you know when I think when we think of Champagne it's linked with uh, you know Dom Perignon and uh, the widow Clicquot and um, what were some of the kind of benchmarks and uh, of of the uh, how Champagne evolved and who are the people kind of that that were behind each step. You know, I, I realized very early on in the process, so I, here I was on the ground spending a lot of right. time immersed in this world of champagne and the process of growing the grapes and making the wine and um, everything that goes into that. And and I realized very, very early that in order for this to make any sense at all, it needed to be in, a, in an historic context. I mean, I was right. asking myself, gosh, I mean, this is so wild. How did this come about and why? Right. And um, so then I started, uh, you know, after, after I, I kind of did my field research, then, and I was, I was sort of, you know, going back over that and making sense out of that, then I really had to start doing historical research. And I have to say that um, that was a, a, a complete a whole other exciting journey that I right. took, delving back into the past of Champagne. And I met so many... Uh, really interesting, intriguing, 
exciting, in some cases, almost unbelievable characters. That um, Some of them are historical, you know, like, well, ones that we are, are a little bit more familiar with in some way, like Dan Perignon. Even even there, there's there's much to to discover. I mean, for one thing, he wasn't really he wasn't blind. For another thing, he never <laughs> said, you know, they made this famous statement that is a tribute to him. Oh, brothers, I see stars in my glass when he tasted, you know, sparkling wine that he had created. I mean, Dan Perignon uh, was a Champenois. He was. Uh, he he was born in the area. He was a he became a he he was he was sent to. Um, he was a monk. He was a monk. Yes, he was yeah. a dom. He 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 was a, he took his orders. He was uh, he was sent to um, to uh, you know this was like after the, the the wars of religion when a lot of the monasteries were completely uh, destroyed. He was sent to um, to a monastery to help really try to get it back on track by getting its wine operations in order. And of course, I mean the monasteries were were making. And selling wine commercially because many people had, had given land to them for some sort of an indulgence or as a tith to the church or something like that. So, the, the, I mean, and John Perignon spent a lot of his time and expertise trying to get rid of the bubbles because they were considered, <laughs> a, you know, spontaneous second, secondary fermentation. You know, wine was considered a flaw. And there were explosions in the cellars. And uh, Oftentimes it would, yeah, people, once, you know, a wine, because, and that came about because in Champagne, like, like we said, it's very, it's very far north. After harvest, it gets very cold. So when the grapes are fermenting following the harvest, Sometimes it gets it gets so cold that it makes the fermentation stop prematurely. Right. But who knew? You bottle it, you put it in a container, and you ship it off or you store it. But what what often happened was in the springtime when the weather warmed up, the temperature would rise and the yeast would wake up and find that there's still some unconsumed sugar left in the wine and it would start a second fermentation. But right. because it was in a closed container, the carbon dioxide was trapped inside, which, if it wasn't too much, would create bubbles diffused, you know, this gas diffused throughout the wine. But oftentimes, like you said, it would explode, and right. that was a huge problem. But so, so I mean, the, the fact is, is that Dom Perignon did not really intentionally, he didn't really create champagne. He tried to, to, to keep, like I say, keep the bubbles out. Right. However, he was, and this is all documented, he was very precise about his vineyard operations, about getting the best quality grapes he possibly could, only picked in the morning, shipped directly to the winery. Uh, he was a master. He was really one of the, one of the key, people, key people to, to devise the whole champagne method of pressing, which now here we have to remember the majority of grapes that are used to make champagne, a clear wine, are red, right. Meunier and Pinot Noir. Those are the predominant grape, that, that's the bulk of the, the grape varieties that are used for it. Dan Perignon was one of the people who was instrumental in creating the techniques to extract clear juice from red grapes, which was right. essential. And that had to do with, and that, that would like stimulated the whole possibility of the wine to not just last out a year but to really to evolve positively over time so i mean i think and i mentioned in my book i think it's fair while he didn't create champagne i think it is fair to think of him as the father of champagne as we know it because he he devised some techniques that paved the way for the other refinements that followed right 
Um, and then, but at the time, if we were drinking champagne back then, uh, there was still yeast in the bottle, correct? I mean, um, and, and so after this secondary fermentation, um, and then as we were talking before the show, I mean, they devised this incredibly complicated method uh, to remove the yeast. Can you, can you talk about that? Yes, well, um, some, some people viewed the, uh, the, this, the spontaneous second fermentation of this wine. Now, okay, we have to remember, I'll back up a little bit to one of your sure. previous questions, which I didn't really answer. Initially, the wine of Champagne was a steel wine. And Champagne is, is a region of France that is just north of another region called Burgundy. Right. So the region of Champagne was in stiff competition with Burgundy, they have, you know, a lot of the same grape varieties, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, sure. um, and they were really actively competing, competing for the favor of the French royal court, because if the court got behind something, everybody else in the country and all of their ambassadors abroad got behind it too. So they were in fierce competition. Uh, it was really only, you know, this, this and, and so one of the things that, that sort of um, was going against Champagne was the fact that compared to Burgundy, the wines were a little bit lighter in body, a little bit, the red wine's a little bit paler in color. Um, and there was this problematic secondary, you know, this tendency to be a little bit what the French call pétillant, like just a little, a touch of fizziness in the still wines. Um, one thing they had going for them was this really great minerality and this great finesse that people appreciated even even back then when it was still trying very hard to be a still wine. Right. Uh, but so once, you know, but it did have this, this, pro, this troublesome tendency to, to create a, a second fermentation in a closed container, which aside from making it bubbly, and some people started to like that, but it also created this sediment. That is a natural byproduct of a, of a, a fermentation where the, the sugar interacts with the yeast in the wine and it creates alcohol. And, but part of that is the yeast cells afterwards, are, you have these dead yeast particles in it. Right. So the French did not like the yeast particles once once Champagne is a sparkling wine had been accepted. They didn't like the fact that it was not clear. And there was also another problem of something that sometimes the, the yeast particles would kind of coagulate in the wine into something that was described as ropiness, like these chains of sort of sludge throating through, <laughs> through the wine. So it became um, a, a goal of, of theirs, of the region as a whole, of all the producers in it, to resolve this problem and one one person um well <laughs> we're not really sure exactly who did it. it but it is it is clear that at the house of Vuv Clico the widow Clico who had taken over um the the house the, the that her husband started and her the 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 the, um, the family were originally textile merchants in Reims as many of the early champagne producers were right, right. they owned land they they made wine um, they were in the forefront of the development of champagne as a wine industry. Uh, and in fact, the widow Clicquot's husband, when he was alive, he was sort of a dreamer. He didn't really want to carry on the family <laughs> textile business. He wanted to, I mean, we're seeing it now again in, you know, in the new world. He wanted to be a winemaker. And he had this romantic um, vision of it. He struggled very, very hard to do it. Uh, unfortunately, he died fairly young. And the widow Clicquot decided to carry on this uh, this this industry, this operation, and eventually she her house was the first one to really discover this technique of getting the sediment out, 
could have right. been her Sheftikov, right. whose name was Mueller, but um, she gets a lot of the credit for it. And and she also deserves credit for many other things, too. Yeah, and, and describe this. I mean, it, it still exists in a pretty unaltered form. Well, at some houses uh, of the actual riddling, the turning the bottles yeah. twice a day. So what 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 she de- basically developed, she or her or cellar master, it doesn't really matter, but they came up with this... Um, this technique, this system of using sort of like an inverted V out of wood with these um, holes drilled in it, you know, drilled in it, and first the bottles went in horizontally, and then gradually they were twisted a little bit at a time, over a period of time, and as they twisted the bottle slightly with a, a little bit of a shake to kind of get the yeast cells all together, they would lift the bottle up each time so that by the end of the process, which took which took usually several months. All of the the yeast, these very fine yeast particles, were con- were collected in the mouth of the bottle. That then they, they developed this whole um, this whole technique for disgorgement, removing the sediment by quickly uprighting the bottle, and 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 the pressure in the bottle would pop out this plug of sediment. So it's really, but I mean, so now you have people who do riddling, and it's it was the the, the technique, the practice that. Uh, was continued throughout Champagne up until the 1960s when someone developed another technique for doing it in a, what's called a Giro palette, so like a cage of wine that is does kind of the same thing but with many bottles at a time. There's still some houses that do riddling by hand, and this is a very, very labor-intensive right. process. It's just incredible. It's really wild. Yeah. Well, we have just a few minutes left. Uh, we're speaking here with Alan Tardy. He's just out with his book, uh, Champagne Uncorked. He's in Austin uh, getting ready for a dinner, a champagne dinner at the Driscoll. Um, and you can find more information at alantardy.com about the book and about uh, many of your other publications and, and writings. Um, it's wonderful. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to, you know, delve into, you know, kind of your take homes from the experience and some things that, uh, that you learned and, and, and some surprises. But, uh, first I want to, I want to remind listeners that support comes from Lincoln Pin Gallery hosting Mary Printmas, featuring a variety of print pieces from woodblocks to ink in, in illustrations and more, uh, by six different artists. The exhibit runs through Friday, December 23rd. Link and Pin is located at 2235 East 6th Street. Suite 102, and for more information, is available at linkpinart.com. Um, so, what what was kind of your biggest take home? And and I mean, you you kind of outline where the industry is going, and um, I hope folks have enjoyed our conversation and trying to highlight how complex champagne is, and uh, these things that we don't think of when we just pop a pop a bottle of champagne when we're celebrating. But it really is a a region with that makes wine first and bubbly wine uh, second, I think, and uh, the vineyards speak their own story. Um, what, uh, what surprised you month, uh, most about this, this project and, and writing the book? <clears throat> well, I mean, obviously there were many, many things, but one thing that really comes to mind is, um, is the agelessness of champagne, yeah. the, this incredible capacity of, of champagne, not, not just any champagne, but of a, of a really great champagne, like many great wines to really evolve favorably over time. And when it comes to champagne, we're talking about, a very long time. So now here, and I had a sense, I was there in 2013 and 2014. So this is like the growing production season, right? So you have, in some cases, you have this fixed moment in time, the 2013 harvest. Yeah. And that will account for 
you know, for the crew blended wine, the Grand Cuvée, about six, roughly 60% of the wine. So you have a fixed moment in time. But from there, you know, you go back in time to the reserve wines, back, you know, 10, 12, 15 years. But then you go forward in time into the future. Now the wine, so we say the Grand Cuvée, based on the year 2013, that wine is not um, even going to be released until 2021. And when it does, it's still going to be very young. So, you know, champagne is this moment, this fulcrum in time that goes back and it goes forwards. And that the timeless element of it was something that really uh, impressed me and still does. And so and you kind of knew that before the, starting the project, but this really, it really highlighted that. And, and you have a, a deeper appreciation for it. Ab- no, yeah. absolutely. And I mean, so now the fact is that the, the, the wines that I saw being, being tasted in there and they're still form and then carefully come to come up with, this, with the blend and then undergo the second fermentation. Right now, those bottles are lying deep in a, within a cellar in Reims, uh, deep down below, just developing and maturing. Um, and they'll be doing that for, you know, four years to come. So yeah. that's, and then it'll still be young. It'll just be born. So right. champagne and, is always a wine that's in the process of being born and becoming. Right. And, and you had the opportunity to taste some very old. So, you know, so champagne is, is, you know, as we've mentioned a few times here, very age worthy. And I mean, what was, what was some of the older wine that you, that you tasted and, uh, and, and describe that experience? Well, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the wines that I mentioned at first in the book was, was a real, one of the, the real inspiration. Inspirations for wanting to un- engage in this process. We tasted a wine um, in actually in the courtyard of Claude Domingue. We tasted it blind. So uh, the, the our host Olivier Krug went around pouring out a wine for us to taste uh, into our glass. And I looked at it. You could tell it was you know it was it was like dark and golden colored. I knew it was an older wine, but it turned out that it was a 1961, and wow. you know it blew my mind. It <laughs> seems so fresh and so lively, and it's like you know more than 50 years old. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, uh, we've got one time for, for for probably one one last question, um, and which we have not talked about before the show. What's your what is the champagne that you'll be drinking this New Year's Eve? What's your what's kind of your favorite? Champagne, not to, you know, uh, not to take sides. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I have no, I have no idea. But you know, whatever it is, it'll be good because it's all good. It's what what you've got. What you've got is is the best one. And what you've got at that moment is the best one there is. So you might as well enjoy it all you can. Right, right. And it's that that magical thing that that links people as well. I mean, uh, your company is such such a a part of the experience of enjoying wine that that that's essential. Absolutely. I mean, sh- wine is it's a it's drinking wine is a moment in time shared with other people and every it brings it brings into play everything that's going on at that point. And it's always, you can always make it a celebration. Yeah. Why not? Alan Tardy, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, thank you f- for everybody listening out there. Uh, one last reminder that we're gearing up for the co-op birthday party, which is Saturday, December 17th at the Spider House Ballroom. Uh, really look forward to seeing everybody there. Um, I hope you'd enjoyed this conversation about champagne. Uh, the last Tuesday of the month of December, we're going to have another uh, champagne kind of conversation uh, with some of our local uh, wine experts here in Austin. Um, Alan, the best of luck for with you. And, and all of your future projects. Thanks very much. It was great to be here with you. Absolutely. Okay, stay tuned for Tracy Schultz and Remix. He's got a, a, a couple of guests in the studio. I'm really looking forward to his show. I want to wish everybody a wonderful week. Um, hopefully you are tasting lots of lovely wine and uh, stay tuned for Tracy Schultz and Remix.